Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome everyone to episode number 84 from Delving into Islam podcast. This is your host, Wa'il. And it is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a privilege that I'm able to talk to you about the religion of Islam and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is allowing me to share my knowledge with you. Thank you so much for listening and participating and sending in all your questions and suggestions. And speaking of which, if you have any questions or suggestions, please email me at delvingintoislam at gmail.com. Again, delvingintoislam at gmail.com and I will get back to you as soon as possible, inshallah. Uh, now, this podcast is for anyone, whether you are remotely curious about the religion of Islam, or if you are studying the religion of Islam, or if you're thinking about becoming a Muslim, or if you just became a Muslim, or if you are already a Muslim who wants to learn more about Islam, this podcast is for you, inshallah. And you guys can follow me on Instagram at withwail. Again, username is withwail for you know future announcements regarding the podcast, you know the the, the episode dates and and the breaks and all these things. So thank you so much, and let's get right into today's topic. And uh, today's topic, we will talk about a bunch of stories that were compiled together regarding the you know spreading of Islam in the Arabian Peninsula and you know more uh, tribes in the Arabian Peninsula accepting Islam, sending their delegates. Now, not everyone accepted Islam. The majority of the tribes did accept Islam and they came to announce their Islam and learn more about, you know, Islam uh, in Medina. But, you know, a few tribes, they came and they were not interested and they wanted to have uh, some sort of a peace treaty with the Muslims. You know, let us stay as pagans. But we will, you know, follow certain conditions and all these things. And this this was called the year of delegations. Amul Wufud. Which basically, again, delegates from every tribe came to talk to the Muslims. The majority came to embrace Islam and learn about Islam. Very minor, uh, you know, tribes came to basically have some sort of a deal with the Muslims. Since they're not interested in becoming Muslims. And, of course, as we know, eventually... All the tribes in the Arabian Peninsula will become uh, Muslims. So, now, let's talk about each delegate. So again, like I said, it's a bunch of stories compiled together. So, we will talk about a bunch of stories, a bunch of tribes, and every tribe had a specific story. We're not going to talk about all of them because there's a lot of them. But we will talk about very interesting ones, stuff that we can learn from. And that's the whole purpose of studying the biography of the Prophet, وسلم, that we can learn lessons from, you know, from him, uh, uh, you know, first of all, then from, you know, situations that happened to him and, and, and so forth. So one of the delegates, the first the delegate that we will talk about uh, was a Bedouin. The leader of that delegate was a Bedouin. And he was not, again, Bedouins uh, were known to be very harsh and they have no mannerisms. So this is something that if you notice throughout the, you know, the, the, the seerah, the, the, the biography that we talked about, every time we talk about a Bedouin, they're kind of harsh. They don't know how to deal with people. They're socially awkward, if you want to say. So this Bedouin came to the Prophet Wasallam, and uh, he went inside the masjid and he was a little, like I said, harsh. And he asked the Prophet a bunch of questions about Islam. Who created the heavens and the earth? So the Prophet said, Allah. Then, who created the animals? He's asking. The Prophet ﷺ said, Allah. Then he said, do I have to pray five times a day to please Allah? The Prophet ﷺ said, yes. Do I have to fast Ramadan to please Allah? Now he knows 
things about Islam, right? So that's what he's asking. He's verifying. Do I have to pay charity? Do I have to pay zakat? The Prophet said, yes. If you have money, if you have any savings, you have to. Then he asked, and this was very interesting. He said, if I only pray the five daily prayers and I do not increase a single prayer nor decrease, will I enter Jannah? The Prophet said, yes. Then he said, okay. If I pay and, and basically the equivalent of 2.5%, and that's the percentage of the uh, zakat that you have to pay from your you know savings and, and for a year. So he said, if I pay only, again, the equivalent, they didn't have that specific number back then. We uh, estimated that number in our time. The scholars have estimated the 2.5%, but it was equivalent to that. So he said, if I pay 2.5% of my wealth in charity, in zakat, should I, and I do not increase a bit nor decrease what I enter Jannah. The Prophet said, yes. Then he said, if I fast Ramadan, the whole month of Ramadan, I, and I do not fast a day extra nor a day less, would I enter Jannah? The Prophet said, yes. Then he said, then I shall do that and I shall not increase a bit nor decrease a bit like he's again it's crazy he's he's so harsh and he's so like you know stubborn that he's like i'm gonna do exactly what you're saying what allah's saying but i'm not gonna do anything else i'm not gonna decrease but i'm not gonna do anything else and then he left and the prophet looked at the companions and he said if he actually do this sincerely and he never decreases then he actually shall enter jannah he shall go to paradise and this is very interesting. Why? Number one, doing the, ma- the, the, the bare minimum should get you to paradise. But you don't know if you're actually even reaching the bare minimum. Let me give you an example. You could pray five times a day and you say, if I pray five times a day every day, I shall enter Jannah, right? I cannot, I'm not going to pray a single extra prayer. I'm not going to pray the Nawafil, the Sunnah prayers. I'm not going to do any of this. Five daily prayers, that's it. Okay. But for in order for the five daily prayers to be accepted, you have to be sincere. You have to be uh Praying while you are in khushu, khushu meaning discipline, ultimate discipline, knowing that Allah is watching you. So you're not looking around, you're not distracted. And when you get distracted, and this is a human nature, you can get distracted, don't worry. You can get distracted while praying. But as soon as you realize that you're getting distracted, you say, Oh, I seek refuge in Allah from shaitan. And you focus on prayer. Only then, those five daily prayers will be accepted. Now, how many of us pray, number one, on time, every single prayer in our lives, every single prayer in our lives? Number two, how many of us pray with the ultimate discipline? How many times we don't get distracted? How many times, you know, we do this and that? And that's why, that's why, it is recommended to do extra 
So when you have shortcomings in your in your obligatory stuff, in your five daily prayers, when you pray extra, it will make that up. And this is actually known. There's a hadith about this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will look, you know, that the first thing, prayers are very, the most important act of worship. The most, after the shahada, after actually taking the testimony of faith, is praying the five daily prayers at least. That's the bare minimum, like we said. The number one, guys, I cannot emphasize this more. The number one act of worship, the most important act of worship that a Muslim must do is praying the five daily prayers on time, at least. That's the bare minimum right there. There are so many hadith and so many verses in the Quran. This is in the Quran. In the Quran. Allah is saying, keep up with the five daily prayers, especially the Asr prayer, the afternoon prayer. Now, Allah is not saying, oh, you can ignore the rest. He's saying that the one that you have to do it as soon as you can is the Asr prayer. As soon as you, you hear that then, or as soon as you know the time had come, you have to pray it on time. It's, you know, very important prayer. But Allah saying, حَافِظُوا عَلَى الصَّلَوَاتِ Meaning, pray on time. Five daily prayers. وَإِنَّهَا لَثَقِيلَةٌ إِلَّا عَلَى الْخَاشِعِينَ It is very heavy praying the five daily prayers. Very heavy. Unless you are a disciplined Muslim. إِلَّا عَلَى الْخَاشِعِينَ so rest assured that if you are pushing yourself and you don't want to pray and you, ah, I don't want to do this, and you have some sort of a feeling towards praying that you don't want to do it, you're not one of those that Allah blessed and said that they are disciplined Muslims. خاشعين. It is, it, it's just crazy important. You have no idea. And we'll talk about this the more we get into the end of our uh, of the season of, of you know the biography of the Prophet we, we will, There are more examples of how important the prayers are. So the Prophet is saying, yes, you could do the bare minimum, but can you? That is the question. If you can truly, sincerely keep up with the bare minimum and not decrease a bit, yes, inshallah, you're guaranteed jannah. This is what Allah promised. And when the Prophet also promised. The problem comes, we don't know if we can even keep up with the bare minimum. That's why we do extra. That's why we do extra. That's why when you're paying zakah and you're not sure, did I actually pay the 2.5%? Try to pay a little bit more. Now, I'm saying, I'm not asking you to pay more. If you're not sure that you pay 2.5%, what you're supposed to pay just increase. It's not a big deal. Just increase a little bit. So you are on the safe side. Listen, a believer always increases and not decreases. Don't take the chance on, don't take the lower chance. Meaning what? If you don't know if you paid the 2.5%, for example, for zakah, don't be like, all right, I think it will round up to, you know, 2.5%, inshallah. I, I probably did. No, pay extra. And say, now I'm on the safe side. That's the attitude of a believer.
So now back to the, I know we went on a tangent here, but back to the main point, which is you doing the bare minimum will get you inshallah Jannah if you truly keep up with the bare minimum. But since it's questionable, it could be in a gray area. Are we actually keeping up? Because there are conditions to the bare minimum, right? We have to do it sincerely and we have to do it precisely. Since we don't know that this is the case, then do extra. Because again, and let me go back because I never finished the hadith. The Prophet said the first thing that the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looks at on the day of judgment. Guys, the first thing is our daily prayers. Allah looks at the books of deeds. Everyone has a book of deeds. We'll talk about that when we get to the day of judgment, inshallah. Probably next season or maybe a little bit after. I don't know yet. But anyway, when Allah looks at the book of deeds... For everyone, the first thing Allah looks at is our five daily prayers. The first thing. If we messed that up, if we didn't actually keep up, if we messed a couple of prayers, if we were not paying attention, if we were distracted, guess what Allah does next? Looks at your nawafil prayers, your bonus prayers, the extra prayers that you prayed. So He's got, he takes from that, from the extra prayers, and makes up to your mandatory prayers. So he adds, he takes from here, from the extra, puts into the mandatory um, until you even out. So imagine you have no extra. What are you going to do then? Because the same hadith says that if you mess up your prayer, if it's not up to the bare minimum, Allah does not look at the rest of your deeds. Allah doesn't care about the rest of your deeds. You messed up prayers. That's it for you. Be careful and do a little bit extra while you can now, inshallah. Anyway, so let's get back to, you know, the stories of the delegations. Now, the second tribe that we will talk about is a tribe by the name of Muzayna. And this tribe came to embrace Islam in its entirety. The entire tribe came to embrace Islam, around 400 people. So they sat down with the Prophet ﷺ and they started learning about Islam for a few days. Now this tribe was had a long journey back home. They like it was like around two week journey or three week journey even. And uh, when they were about to go back home, the Prophet ﷺ told Omar. He called Omar and he said, "Oh Omar, please uh, give them some food for their trip back home." So Omar looked at the Prophet ﷺ and he looked at the tribe and he said, "O Prophet of Allah." I have only one bag of dates in my house and it won't be enough for 400 people. Like, what am I going to do now? So the Prophet smiled and he said again, Omar, just please give them food for their trip back home. He literally repeated himself. And we know that the Prophet sometimes doesn't explain, but when he repeats, that means don't argue. Just go do it and just let it be. So, Omar, when he, you know, the Prophet ﷺ repeated himself, he said, okay. So Omar did not even argue and he went home uh, to get that one bag of dates. And when he opened uh, his, his, the door for his, his house, lo and behold, the entire house was filled with dates. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ said, Omar, just go, man. Just go, Omar. Because the Prophet ﷺ knew that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will cause a miracle and that was indeed a miracle literally he opened the door and his house was filled he couldn't even walk in was filled with dates why 
He put his trust in Allah. He believed the Prophet ﷺ and he went home to do the work. Again, there's a pattern here. Do the work and Allah will provide. He went, he's like, okay, we'll make it work, inshallah. He didn't say, no, 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 no. You're not, it's not going to happen. No, the Prophet ﷺ said it again. So he went right away. And lo and behold, the entire house. Now, it was not a big house. It's technically, they used to live in rooms that they used to call a house. Like suctioned room, right? And... uh he opened that room or that house and it was filled with dates. So he called all 400 and he basically told them to, you know, they had each, they had their sacks again for the traveling. It was a custom thing. And they all filled up all their sacks of, of, of dates. They filled them up. And the last person to take from that pile of dates narrated himself, said that when I left now, we're talking about the last one of the 400 taking dates and walking away, leaving Omar's house. He said, when I left, I looked back and the amount of dates did not decrease a bit. The room was still filled to the top, to the ceiling, filled with dates. As if none of us took any dates. Subhanallah. And this is again a miracle from Allah. What Allah has is infinite. The blessings and the wealth and the provision that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has is infinite. Just ask Allah and rely on Allah and do the work. Now, this also brings us something that we should learn from. When you are generous, and even if you have a little bit to offer, offer it for the sake of Allah. You know, offer it. Give it to the poor, give it to the needy, and Allah will inshallah increase your wealth. There's a hadith, a very famous hadith, and wallahi, myself and everyone else I know, wallahi, Allah is my witness. I can testify to that hadith. The Prophet ﷺ said, one thing, one of three things, but we're, we're, we're focusing on this one thing that the Prophet ﷺ mentioned in the hadith. One thing that I can swear by, paying charity will not decrease a bit from your wealth. Again, the Prophet said, I swear by this, that if you pay charity, your wealth will not decrease. You won't even feel any decrease in your wealth. And my brothers and sisters, wallahi, this is very true. And it's not just me. Everyone I know would come to me and be like, alhamdulillah, I've been giving a lot of charity. And man, it's like magic. I don't feel it at all. I don't feel that I'm giving away money. Or like whatever that you give away in terms of charity. I don't feel it. And wallahi, this is so true. Just do it with sincerity though. Do it for the sake of Allah. And don't tell anybody that, you know, don't tell anybody that you know. You can, uh, and this is, get, we're getting into like a, another fiqh territory. But let me tell you this. You are allowed to tell people that you're giving charity. Like I'm doing right now. Uh, it's not that I give a lot of charity. I give a, a, as much as I can. To encourage them to do so with the intention of encouraging people to give charity. It doesn't matter how small it is. Just give, even if it's a dollar or whatever that the currency that you're dealing with, just give anything for the sake of Allah. Of course, we're talking about this is an optional, the sadaqah. There's a, two types of charity. I talked about this in early, early episodes. There's something called sadaqah and there's something called zakah. Zakah is mandatory. If you have any savings for a year, you are obligated to pay 2.5% of that wealth. This is not a matter of choice. 
If you don't do it, you're sinful. It's a major sin. But I'm talking about the sadaqah here. The sadaqah is the optional charity. Sadaqah is optional. You don't have to pay sadaqah. But again, like I said, pay extra in form of sadaqah better than just paying the zakah. So, if you pay just a dollar, and we're talking about the sadaqah now, just a dollar extra, two dollars, and I'm not saying you pay should be at Pay a dollar. Pay as much as you can. Uh, the more you pay, the more Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward you, inshallah. But what my point is, you won't feel it. You won't feel it. And if you feel it, you something wrong. That means you're looking, you're like, you know, you're nitpicking. You're like, you know, looking for uh, a thing. But I'm telling you, a lot of people I know come to me, wallah, and they tell me, subhanallah, I don't feel that. And, and, and some of them, you know, some of them actually were living uh, a little tight. In, when it comes to you know financially, and yet they, when they pay extra, they don't feel. And the Prophet said, by the way, sadaqah. The Prophet was talking about the sadaqah, not the zakat. When the Prophet said your money won't decrease, he was talking about sadaqah, the optional uh, charity. So, generosity leads that Allah subhanahu wa taala, if He doesn't increase it as much as in a noticeable way, you won't lose anything. We're talking about charity. So again, and charity is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us so much about in the Quran. I should inshallah make uh, an episode about you know the importance of paying charity, both zakah and sadaqah in Islam. Inshallah, I will I will do that. But anyway, now another tribe came in uh, by the name of uh, the tribe of Asad ibn Khuzaymah. And they came to the Prophet uh, to the masjid and they basically started boasting. They said, O oh, Prophet of Allah, we came to you on our own. You did not have to send us any emissaries or any delegations. We accepted Islam because we wanted to, not because we felt forced like other tribes. Now, forced mean mentally, like they didn't want to leave. We said Islam was not spread by force. We had to travel in the darkness and in the cold weather of the desert just to come to you and announce our Islam. Basically, you were boasting like we did you a favor. You should be grateful. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, look at this, revealed a verse in the Quran regarding this specific tribe and it applies on everybody else who, think, who acts the same. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the chapter of Hujurat, verse number 17, Look at this. Allah is addressing the Prophet about this tribe. He's saying what? They think they have done you a favor by being Muslims, by becoming Muslims. Tell them, Allah is telling the Prophet tell them, you have done me no favors. Rather, Allah has done you a big favor, the ultimate favor by guiding you to Islam. Basically, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, do you think by becoming Muslims, you've done the Prophet ﷺ a favor? You've done me a favor? No. I've done you the ultimate favor. And this applies not just on this tribe. Now, this tribe was addressed, but Allah also intended for, that's the whole purpose of the Quran, to learn from other stories. And it's addressed, it's all, it's all about us at the end of the day. The Quran is addressing all of us. Muslims and non-Muslims alike. In any time, any you know, in any frame of time, 
This year, next year, past, future, Quran intended to reach everyone at any time. For those who say, well, Quran is meant to address a specific era or a specific time and a specific people, you're absolutely wrong. Quran is addressing every single human being. Yes, there are certain commands for those who are Muslims, but the Quran tells everyone that they have to be Muslims. Otherwise, they won't get paradise. Those who, of course, we're talking about those who witnessed Islam and they didn't want to submit. But anyway, this is beside the point. We talked about this many times. But anyway, so do you think, and I'm talking to you now, those who, for example, think that by becoming Muslims, they've done Islam a favor. No, you haven't. No, you have not. Allah has done you the ultimate favor by guiding you to Islam. And the Muslims who think that when they pray five times a day or they fast Ramadan or they do their you know, acts of worship, they're doing Islam a favor or do, doing Allah a favor. No, you're not. You're not doing anyone any favors. You're doing yourself a favor. And Allah has done you, the, again, the ultimate favor by guiding you to Islam or keeping you upon Islam if you were born a Muslim. The only one benefiting from you being a Muslim and being a good Muslim is you, nobody else. Nobody else. Now, we have another story uh, from the tribe of Banu Amr. Now, Banu Amr is a tribe that had no intention to embrace Islam. They actually came to assassinate the Prophet. It was a crazy story. So let's talk about this story. Now, this tribe had a very dark history with the Muslims. We talked about it very briefly before, during the incident of the tribe of Banu Nadir. Now, for those of you who don't remember, the tribe of Banu Nadir is the tribe, the second Jewish tribe in Medina who tried to assassinate the Prophet. Remember when they, they asked him to wait by the gate of, of, of their of the fortress, and they went on top of their fortress on, uh, on the roof to drop a big rock uh, uh, on the Prophet, but then uh, Angel Jibreel came and he warned the Prophet and the Prophet walked away. That is the tribe of Banu Nadir. Now, why did the tribe uh, go inside the fortress in the first place. What was what, what happened between them and the Prophet? Remember, the Prophet said, I need the blood money. Now, what does that mean? What, what was the blood money for? We said the blood money means what? If a Muslim commits murder towards a Muslim or a non Muslim, it doesn't really matter. And to, to, to make up for that murder, they have to pay blood money. It's called blood money, a compensation for that murder. Even if it was by mistake, by the way. Okay, so let's backtrack here. Why did the Muslims have to collect uh, blood money? Because one of the Muslims killed... I'm actually going backwards. For those of you who saw the movie Memento, I'm literally going backwards in events. The, a Muslim killed a pagan, or two pagans, I think, from the tribe of Banu Amr, this tribe. He killed them. Why did he kill them? He killed them by mistake. Why did he kill them by mistake? Because the tribe of Banu Amr committed a massacre against the Muslims. Now, for those of you who remember, we talked about this incident. Was just, we didn't focus so much about it, but we talked about it in passing. So the tribe of Banu Amr, they wanted to uh, trap the Muslims. Not all the Muslims, some of them. So they pretended that they became Muslims. And then they sent a messenger to the Prophet saying, oh, send us some Muslims to teach us Islam. We became Muslims and we want to learn Islam. So 
the Prophet said, I, th- I think he sent either three or four of the companions to go teach uh, that tribe about Islam. And it was all a trap because once the Muslims walked into the, the, the city of, of Banu Amir, they were killed and they captured one of them and they were torturing one of them. So they massacred the Muslims who went to teach him Islam. They were ruthless. And up until this point, they're still ruthless, right? They have no intention of embracing. They are pure evil, basically. Then this one person that they captured managed to run away, to escape. During this operation of him, you know, escaping their tribe, the leader of the tribe of Banu Amr had a peace treaty, had a, a, a basically a covenant with the Prophet ﷺ that they will have peace. After this incident, they will have peace and they are on good terms. And this happened during the person is trying to escape. It took, of course, days and days. And when he actually managed to escape, he was going back to Medina. And lo and behold, he saw two people coming back from Medina. And they were from the Banu. They were messengers, basically. They were from Banu Amr. So he, out of retaliation. Now, he does not know that there's a peace treaty going on. All he knows is that this tribe murdered the companions, his fellow Muslims. So out of retaliation, he killed both of them. But that happened during that treaty. So the Prophet ﷺ now ha- was obligated to pay. Look how ironic this was. And it shows you the perfection of the character of the Prophet ﷺ. He could have said, well, you massacred our people. Yeah, but guess what? They were under a treaty. So the Prophet ﷺ, because uh, that companion killed these two people again, and he had the absolute right to do so because they murdered all the Muslims, but he didn't know. So they had to pay the blood money to that tribe, and this is why they went to Banu Nadir to ask for their help. So this is the tribe of Banu uh, Amr, and they are the ones who caused the massacre. Now they're coming, and the leader, by the way, the one who orchestrated, not the leader of the tribe, the one who orchestrated that massacre was none other than Amr ibn Tufayl. Amr ibn Tufayl. He was an evil man. And he basically said, let's go pretend, again, now we're talking about in present time, in the year of delegations here. Let's go pretend that we're embracing Islam as, as a tribe and let's assassinate Muhammad. Let's assassinate the Prophet. So he uh, basically talked to his henchman, uh, Arbad ibn Qais. Arbad ibn Qais was his basically henchman. And he uh, basically, they agreed that uh, Arbad will have his, uh, uh, he'll have a knife, a dagger, and he'll poison it. Again, it was the easiest way to get to kill someone who is in high status, right? A public figure. That's the easy way. Just stab him once, and the the the, the venom or the, the the poison will do the work. So he poisoned. He had a very strong poison uh, in his in his uh, in his uh, dagger, and he put it. And basically, the plan was they would go into the tent of the Prophet ﷺ, ask for a private audience, and when the time comes, uh, Amr will motion to Arbad, and Arbad will stab the Prophet. ﷺ. So they actually did. They went to the tent of the Prophet. ﷺ. They started talking. So Amr goes, "Oh, Prophet of Allah!" Now this is all fake. They don't believe that. They don't want to follow him. So he said, "Oh, Prophet of Allah, I I want to have a private uh, private audience with you. Can we talk privately?" So the Prophet said, no, we cannot. So Amr goes, oh, okay, all right, no problem. And then they started negotiating and arguing, whatever. And then Amr again asks, can we talk privately? I don't feel comfortable. Like I just want to speak with you privately. I feel, I'll feel better. And again, the Prophet said, 
nope, not gonna happen. So it kept happening. They kept asking, and the Prophet kept refusing. So Amr realized this is not gonna happen. So he motioned to Arbat to just do it anyway. Now there are people in 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 the tent. You know, there are companions in the tent, but he's like, you know what, we'll manage either to escape or we'll just, you know, die but kill uh, Muhammad. So he motioned to Arbad, but Arbad seemed confused. He was looking at Amr like, what do you want me to do? So Amr kept negotiating, negotiating and pretending that he's having a discussion. Then again, he motions to Arbad, like kill him. And Arbad looks confused. And Amr is like, what is happening here? Then Amr again, and then he motions him a, a third time, and Arbad is like, "What? What? What's happening?" So when Amr realizes this is not working out either way, so he started showing his true colors now. So he says to the Prophet "Oh Muhammad, let me tell you this. I'll give you three options, and you choose one of them. The first option is that you take charge of the cities, and I'll take charge of the Bedouins. So in the Arabian Peninsula." You take charge of the Mecca, Medina, you know, all these big cities, Ta'if, whatever. You take charge. But when it comes to the Bedouins, I'll be the leader of the Bedouins. So it's all po- politics, Tim. It's all about politics. I'll take control of half. You take control of half. Or, here's your second option. If you don't like the first option, let's talk about the second option. You assign me to be the leader of the Arabs after you die. So be, basically, I become your successor. And if you don't want any of these two, then you and me, we're going to go to war. I'm going to fight you. And I have a big army, and you know it. Basically, blatant, like, threat. So the Prophet ﷺ said, none of the above, none of the choices. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect me from your evilness. This is actually a very uh, beneficial and important dua that you make to Allah, a prayer or a supplication. Oh Allahumma qini sharra fulan. Oh Allah, protect me. And you can say it in English if you don't know how to speak Arabic. Just say, Oh Allah, protect me from the evilness of so and so. If you know someone is evil and they try to harm you, seek Allah's refuge, seek Allah's protection. Oh Allahumma qini sharra amir, for example. Oh Allahumma, protect me from the evilness of Amr or the evilness of X. doesn't matter. You ask Allah to protect you specifically from that person. So Amr leaves. He's like, okay. So when Amr left, he looked at Arbad and he was very angry. He's like, dude, what's up, man? I kept motioning to you and you didn't do anything. You looked very confused. What, what's up with you? And Arbad said, what do you want me to do? Every time you motion to me, I don't see the Prophet. I don't see Muhammad. I see only you in the room and the companions. Every single time you motion to me, I can't see him. I can hear him talking, but I can't even see him. And I can't even locate where he is. He's not in a room. So all I can see in front of me is you. Do you want me to stab you? That's literally what he said to him. And of course, that was a miracle. Uh, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and again that shouldn't be surprising this happened before remember during the emigration itself when the Prophet was passing by and they wanted to assassinate him while he was you know going to pray and they couldn't see him he was literally walking amongst them the people of Quraysh and he, they couldn't see him and Allah put a barrier between the Prophet and his enemies this is exactly what happened Arbat could not see the Prophet to be able to stab him in the first place 
So anyway, they go back home. Now, remember the dua of the Prophet Sallallahu Oh Allah, protect me from the evilness of that man. So on the way, they went, they passed by a brothel. Um, for those of you know, who don't know what a brothel is, it's like um, an escort house, basically. And they spent uh, the night there. And during the night, Amir gets a, a, a skin disease that no one had witnessed before. A very rare skin disease that basically went and spread so fast that he felt he was dying. He realized, I'm, I'm about to die. And he then told the people there, and that's why it's recorded. He said, I'm not going to die in a brothel. People won't say, Amir ibn Tufail di- died in a brothel. So he jumped on his horse while he was very sick. And he took his horse away, you know, galloped his horse far away from the brothel, never to be seen again. Allah took care of him, basically. Allah dealt with him in his own majesty, in his own way. No one ever witnessed Amr after this. Not even his dead body. Nothing. Allah took care of him. And this is the dua. Look at Allah's protection. This guy completely vanished. No one knows where he went. As for Arbad, of course, Amr disappeared. No one knows where he went. So Arbad said, I'm going to go uh, you know, back to, my, to the tribe in the morning. And he actually indeed went back to his tribe in the morning. And while he was on his camel, and his entire tribe is watching. They ask him first. They say, um, what happened with Muhammad? And he started telling them about Islam, but in a, in a derogatory way. Right, he's making fun of Islam, but he tells him what happened, and he tells him the miracle that happened, and he's like, "I didn't see him," and, and all these things. And then, while he's riding his camel, Allah out of nowhere sent a lightning that struck him, and it, it basically incinerated him. He was burnt to death, instantly, died. And the people witnessed this. And subhanAllah, that caused them to eventually embrace Islam because they realized the miracle of Allah and the punishment of Allah. And they embraced Islam. And that was a miracle, subhanAllah. So, let's talk about another tribe, another story. Now, in the beginning of the persecution of the Muslims, this is a story that also we mentioned briefly because, you know, we didn't have to focus on it at the time. Remember, for those of you who remember, in the beginning when Quraysh used to stand uh, by the gates of, of, of Mecca telling people not to listen to Muhammad while he's reciting Quran because whatever he says is 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 is, uh, is poem and it's like in, in enchanted and, and, and they will fall under his spell and whatever remember and remember we said there was a man who said if if if, if you guys remember the story who said to himself he, he's trying to block, actually, he, he, that man blocked his own ears because they would recommend, please block your ears, do not listen to Muhammad. So that man, while he was blocking his ears and he was watching uh, the Prophet ﷺ, he said to himself, I'm an, I'm an adult, I'm a sane human being, I'll listen to what he has to say, I'm not going to be enchanted, that doesn't make any sense. And he went to file, and he went and he basically started talking to the Prophet ﷺ. And, and by the way, to file was from the tribe of called Daus. In Yemen, he was from Yemen. And he started asking the Prophet, what are you talking about? And the Prophet recited the last uh, three chapters of the Quran. Those three chapters to Tufail and Tufail instantly became a Muslim. He realized that these words are not from a human being. He became a Muslim 
and uh, Tufail went back to his tribe in Yemen and preached Islam. And so many people converted on his hands. Of course, this was all by the will of Allah. And from those, and this is a very interesting trivia question right now. From those who converted was one of the most famous, I think he's the most famous hadith narrator ever. Those of you who ever read any book of hadith, any book of hadith, you must have you know, uh, you must have uh, came across the name of Abu Huraira. Most, the overwhelming majority of the hadith is actually narrated by Abu Huraira. So Abu Huraira is from that tribe, the tribe of Daus in Yemen, who basically became a Muslim on the hands of Tufail, that man who talked to the Prophet Look at the, the, the history, subhanAllah. Now, an interesting thing, actually, Abu Huraira has a title, the preserver of the Sunnah, half of the Sunnah, because Abu Huraira, look at this, compiled around 6,000 hadith by the Prophet Imagine, 6,000, not 600, 6,000, close to 6,000, it's 5,000 and, 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 and close to 6,000. Here's the crazy part. Abu Huraira lived with the Prophet Sallam in the same, you know, in the same city for two years only. Two years. Abu Huraira comes now in this delegation towards the end. In this delegation, Abu Huraira comes. You know, he converted when 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 Tufail preached, but now they're coming to embrace Islam. One of the delegations of Yemen of the tribe of Daus is coming now, and Abu Huraira comes and he stays in Medina. So how come a man who stayed only two years with the Prophet ﷺ was able to compile the most of the hadith? I think the second most is Aisha, radiallahu anha, the wife of the Prophet ﷺ, Aisha. She, I think she compiled like four thousand and also close to five thousand. But Abu Huraira is the most compiler of the hadith. 6,000, imagine. Why? How did this happen? He gave up everything. He gave up family. He gave up work. He literally would stay day and night recording and writing down everything the Prophet ﷺ said. He lived in the masjid, by the way. He lived in a mosque. He did not have a house. He did not... Abu Huraira was, and this is him telling us, gave up everything to the extent that sometimes he would have a little debate, a little discussion. After the salah, after the prayers in the masjid, he lives in the masjid, right? He would talk to one of the companions about any any issue in Islam, any any matter. And he, they will have a little discussion and we'll keep walking with him. And he's telling us this so that they can reach that companion's house and what happens when they reach the companion's house? He will offer him food instantly. That's from the Islamic mannerisms. We have to offer food if somebody comes to your house. And that's how he used to eat. You know, subhanAllah. And he would keep on debating. And and all for the of course he loved debating about Islam, but at the same time he wanted to eat. And he is not ashamed to say the story. It's an incredible thing. Only so he could be day and night. In the presence of the Prophet ﷺ, recording everything, all the hadith—not not all, 
the majority of the hadith that you guys derive things from right now, the authentic hadith, all of them came from, most of them came from Abu Hurairah. Look at the majority of hadith, all narrated by Abu Hurairah, narrated by Abu Hurairah, subhanAllah. So anyway, so this tribe, you know, comes in and Abu Hurairah uh, simply uh, moves into Medina during this delegation. So that's that's what it's what's important about this delegation. Now, one of my favorite ones, and I'm a little biased about this this delegation that we this tribe that we're about to talk about right now. For very obvious, once I tell you, the reasons will be obvious why I'm a little biased towards this, and it's very special to my heart. And not a big deal, but it's to me it's very it just makes me smile and makes me feel happy. The delegation of Wa'il ibn Hujr. So, guys, you know the name Wa'il. He is a, a very famous companion, and I couldn't have been more proud that my name is Wa'il, uh, you know, uh, uh, and like, you know, the, this companion. And his story is actually very fascinating. That's why it's very, it's not just special because of the name. It's special because the name combined by a beautiful story of Wa'il ibn Hujr. So Wa'il is also from Yemen. So you guys need to understand, Yemen at the time was many kingdoms, many kingdoms. So Wa'il is uh, from a royal blood. His grandfather was a king of one of these kingdoms. So he was a prince. So Wa'il was a prince and he was the rightful heir to one of the kingdoms. He was about to become a king. But then he embraced Islam. He became a Muslim. And because of that, he lost his kingdom to one of his relatives. I think a cousin or something. Look at this. It gets better. Not just because he's noble and he gave up a whole kingdom. It gets even better. The Prophet ﷺ predicted. He said before Wa'il came, the delegation of Wa'il came. He said, Wa'il ibn Hujr is about... Now, some people know who Wa'il is. Because again, like he was a prince, a very known prince in Yemen. Some people didn't. So the Prophet ﷺ is announcing. A prince, a royal blood is coming to embrace officially, he was he already embraced Islam, to officially embrace Islam and to basically, you know, pledge allegiance and all these things. He's coming in a, he predicted the day before, I think, or like two days before that he's coming. And again, it's not a surprise. The Prophet knew certain things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him about when it comes to the unseen and the future. So he's basically saying uh, that, you know, the prince of Yemen will come, one of the princes of Yemen will come and uh, he is, and look at the beauty of this. He has a, the Prophet is describing Wa'il, and he said, he has a pure heart, and he embraced Islam very, very sincerely. Basically, he was not pressured. He didn't feel like, oh, Islam is spreading now, it's time for me. And again, Allah told our Prophet the intentions of certain people. The Prophet did not know the intentions, Allah did, and he told the Prophet certain intentions. So treat him nicely. So when Wa'il came, the Prophet, this is recorded in history, in books of history, the Prophet honored him like he hardly honors anybody. Look at this. He honored him so much that he took him with him to the pulpit. Now the pulpit is called the mimbar, which is the stage that, you know, when imams uh, speak in the masjid, in the mosque, they stand on that pulpit. It's like, you know, a couple steps 
and they sit down and or they stand, whatever. So it's called the pulpit. So the Prophet took Wa'il, he doesn't do this with anybody, any delegation, he doesn't do this. He took Wa'il with him and got on top of that pulpit and he started making dua for Wa'il and his children. Oh Allah, bless Wa'il. Oh Allah, bless his children. Oh Allah, accept from them. Like beautiful dua. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make that dua from my share as well. I mean, uh, and then Wa'il had a little complaint. It's just a tiny complaint that look at what my cousin is doing, my family is doing, they throw me. I, I did, uh, I embraced Islam and the Prophet again knew the intention of Wa'il. I embraced Islam sincerely, but I'm just upset at my family, how they treated me because just became, because obviously his family was not Muslim at the time. Uh, because I became a Muslim, they you know they kicked me out of you know my uh, my uh, you know my air and all these things and uh, so the Prophet smiled and told Wa'il, Oh Wa'il, do not worry, you will have something way better than a worldly throne. You will have Jannah, a beautiful house in Jannah, paradise. Now a question: Why did the Prophet Treat Wa'il very, you know, in a very you know special way. Well, the 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 scholars actually were mentioning that number one, this man gave up an entire kingdom. This is not something, by the way, easy to do. You gave up an entire kingdom to become a Muslim, and he became a normal human being. Yes, he 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 got into the government afterwards, and he became one of the politicians and so forth. But now. You know, he was assigned, again, he's from royal blood, so he was assigned some sort of a leadership position. But at the time, he didn't know that he was going to get that. He didn't know that he's going to be blessed with a leadership position. He gave up all everything for the sake of Islam. He left his family, he left his kingdom, and came to become a Muslim. And that's why, and Allah knows best, maybe there are other reasons that the Prophet knew something about his intentions that was not mentioned but you know the obvious reason is is because of that. The Prophet honored him in a very special way. And again, it's I know it's a little bit of a joke, but I, I, the fact that his name is Wa'il is just very uh, special uh, to me. Alhamdulillah. So anyway, let's talk about the final uh, tribe, the final story uh, in terms of the delegations and you know uh, the Arabian Peninsula accepting and embracing Islam. In in terms of majority of them, of course, not all of them. The tribe of Thaqif. We talked about this tribe in the last episode during the Battle of Hunayn. That was the main tribe of the city of Ta'if. A very infamous city at the time. Alhamdulillah, now it's a beautiful city, a beautiful Muslim city. But back in the day, it was a very infamous uh, city. Now, you guys remember during the peace treaty, the treaty of Hudaybah with Quraysh, a man by the name of Urwa ibn Mas'ud and I'll remind you, and inshallah, you'll remember who he was, because I know the names are too much. I, I understand. So I'm, I'm, I try to you know, mention their situations, and hopefully, inshallah, you will know them by the situation. Remember the man who walked in, the first one of the first people to talk to the Prophet from the side of Quraysh before the treaty took place. And he basically said, Who are those people? Those Ansar, they're not going to help you. They're going to flee the battlefield, remember? And they all got angry, and then he spent two hours with them, or an hour. And then he went back to Quraysh and he said, those people will do whatever it takes. That man who changed his perspective in a span of an hour or two. Remember that man who said, they will do whatever it takes to protect and follow the Prophet 
He looks at them and they understand exactly what he wants. They show respect to him. Remember the man who said, I've been in, into the palaces of of, of, uh, of Qisra or in the palaces of uh, the Caesar in Rome and the Persian palaces and I've seen no one getting the same respect that Muhammad is getting from his companions. That was Urwa ibn Mas'ud. And we talked briefly that he later on embraced Islam. We mentioned his story. Remember, again, he went to the Prophet after the Battle of Hunayn. Now, after the Battle of Hunayn, he actually officially embraced Islam. And he said to the Prophet don't worry, I'm going to go back to my people and I will convince them to embrace Islam. I'm going to preach Islam to them. And remember, I said what the Prophet said, I worry about your Urwa. Your people won't like this. The tribe of Thaqif are still hating Islam. And then Urwa said, don't worry, my people love me. And he was overconfident. And then he went and he preached Islam to them. And they started, you know, uh, cursing him out, uh, being rude to him. And he got upset. He went back to his home. He made wudu. He woke up for Fajr and he made wudu. And as soon as he made the adhan, he was about to pray Fajr on the roof, on top of the roof of his house. Somebody shot him and he died. They killed him because he was praying Fajr in public on top of his house. That is Urwa ibn Mas'ud. Now, they were worried because they killed the Muslim. Urwa became a Muslim. So they came and they were a little afraid of the Muslims for what they did. And they had a little bit of fear. So they came and uh, they said, we embrace Islam, you know, uh, and, uh, but they wanted to, again, negotiate. Like, let's see the conditions and, and see if we, you know, fully embrace Islam or not. So they came uh, and uh, basically the Muslims, the Prophet commanded the Muslims to be very generous with them. Look. And they were a little shocked. They were shocked to the extent that they were paranoid that the food, the Muslims started offering them food, you know, lunch, dinner, whatever, you know, water and, and, and all these things. So they got paranoid that the food was poisoned. So every time a Muslim brings them food, they ask the Muslim to eat from it first to make sure that the food is not poisoned. That's how, you know, paranoid they were because of what they did. They were the toughest tribe to accept Islam. You know, they, they were worse than Quraysh. They killed the Muslim while he was praying in their own tribe. He was, from, he was a leader from their tribe. And they didn't care. They hated Islam so much that they killed their own leader. One of the leaders, at least. He's not the ultimate leader. But anyway. So they did so much. And why the Muslims are being so generous? It doesn't make sense to them. They must be poisoning the food. That's what they thought. And of course, that didn't happen. And, uh, and again, Islam teaches us this. Be generous with everyone. Be nice to everyone, even if they were your enemies, as long as they are honorable enemies. They're not dirty ones. They wouldn't take advantage. They wouldn't think that you're weak. That's what Islam teaches us. You have an enemy, you have a disagreement. Okay, no problem. There's respect. There's a mutual respect. Show respect. But if somebody disrespects you, and uh, don't, then don't be nice because that might be interpreted as weakness. And inshallah, as a Muslims, we're not weak. We're good people, alhamdulillah. We have the perfect religion, but we're not weak. So anyway, uh, so they started negotiating with the Prophet. Is usury haram? Usury meaning interest. 
The Prophet said, yes, it is 100%. Okay. Uh, is, is adultery haram? The Prophet said, yeah, Allah has forbidden usury and adultery. You cannot commit, you know, uh, zina. You cannot commit uh, premarital sex. You can't engage in that. So they said, okay, okay. Uh, how about idolatry? Can we worship idols uh, alongside? Oh, that's the whole point, guys, of Islam. No, it's... It, and they were arguing, not for the sake of arguing, but like they were trying to squeeze anything they could get away with. And not shockingly, there's a lot of people in our world today. Many people that you'll talk to and you'll, you know, you have a conversation with and they will argue with you about Islam and they'll argue with you about like the five daily prayers. They'll argue with you about fasting. Do I have to really do this? Do I have, what about if I, if I do this? And you're like, I know where's this heading. You know, is dating halal like, you know, maybe if we only talk on the phone, they try to squeeze anything out of Islam so they could get away with it. There And there's a lot of people, they don't say, no, it's haram, then let's come. Because the Prophet tells us, do not come near the gray area. Don't play in the gray area. Don't try to squeeze your way out of something, you know. So that's what they were doing, Right. So they started arguing and arguing. The Prophet said, no. So they said, how about if you give us three years so we can get accustomed to all these, you know, haram, haram, haram. We can't do any of this. So the Prophet said, no. If you become Muslims, then you have to abide by the rules. Otherwise, it's it's a major sin. I can't, like, interfere between you and Allah. This is between you and Allah. But you're committing major sins. It's haram. And you're not allowed to do certain things. You're not allowed to sell alcohol. Like, they're like, can we drink alcohol at least? No. They were squeezing the Prophet to try to get anything out of him that they could get away with. It was ridiculous. And so they said, about the five daily prayers, by the way, um, we can't bend our knees. You know, we live in a cold land and we have like problems with them. Like, it's just ridiculous. They were trying to get away fasting. Can we, do we have to fast all 30 days or all month? Come on, can we fast a little bit? It's just, again, I'm laughing because I know people who are like that, unfortunately. They will try to question everything. Do I have to? Do I, does it really have to be this way? What are you getting at? You can't bargain with Allah. When Allah tells you something is forbidden, it's forbidden. Don't try to play games with Allah. Then the Prophet actually told them a very, very uh, important phrase. He said what? When they said, we cannot pray because our knees, he said what? There is no good in a person whose religion does not command him or her to pray. Again, my dear brothers and sisters, praying is critical in Islam. Again, there is no good in a person. This is the Prophet I'm telling them. There is no good in a person whose religion does not command them to pray. There's no good in them. Prayers, prayers, prayers. As-salah, as-salah, as-salah. Critical, wallahi, critical. So they said, okay, how about the, we cannot break our idols? You want us to break the, our idols? We can't do this. It's just going to cause some sort of a curse upon us. We can't do this. They, they still have pagan beliefs, of course. They're not there yet. So the Prophet said, don't worry about this. We'll take care of that. Don't worry, but we'll break it for you. And indeed, uh, and we'll end with this, inshallah. The Prophet ﷺ sends Abu Sufyan and Al-Mughira to uh, basically destroy the idols, to break the idols so they can stop worshipping them and praying to Allah alone. 
And Al-Mughira was known to be a prankster. So he goes to Abu Sufyan on the way there and he's like, let me pull a prank on them. Do you want to laugh a little bit? And Abu Sufyan said, yeah, of course, you know, who doesn't like a good laugh? Sure. So Al-Mughira went there and while they were breaking the idols, he pretended that he was harmed by them. He was like, uh, was paralyzed. He started going, oh my God, I can't move. I feel something strange in me. And they all looked and I was like, oh, this is crazy. Some of them were happy. Oh, that proves that we were right all along. You guys were wrong, right? Some of them were shocked because they never witnessed anything like this. But then Al-Mughira laughs at them and he said, you fools. I just wanted to show you how ridiculous idol worshiping is. They won't harm you and they won't benefit you. Nothing. These are nothing. And he continued breaking the, the, you know, the idols to, again, to prove a point and at the same time make, you know, a joke. Uh, so that's it. Uh, that is basically the summary of you know the Arabian Peninsula embracing Islam. And uh, again, this is uh, as you guys guessed by now. This is we're getting towards the end. I think there is probably two episodes left or three episodes left to the the finale of this incredible journey that Wallahi I had with you guys. And again, it's critical to learn about the Prophet for many reasons. I, you know, always mention those reasons. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts from all of us. Thank you so much for listening. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.